Well, tonight I want to begin um, a study in the book of Exodus. Um, we spent quite a few evenings speaking quite generally, I suppose, on the uh, revelation that we have in the Bible during the period of Moses. And I was trying to explain, um, well, at least the reformed understanding of how the Mosaic covenant or, or the law connects with the covenant of grace uh, in its old and new covenant forms or administrations, uh, how it links with the covenant of common grace and how it linked with the covenant of works which took place before sin entered the world. Um, reformed teaching is, is covenant theology. Not everyone agrees with that. But if you want to call yourself reformed in any way, you have to be a covenant uh, you have to believe in covenant theology, otherwise it really isn't reformed theology at all. So tonight, um, I want to begin looking more specifically at the book of Exodus, and we'll go through um, each of these books, and I will promise to make quicker, <laughs> quicker progress than I did in Genesis. So hopefully with three or four, maybe three or four evenings, we'll get through Exodus um, to make reasonable progress, we'll need to continue to trace this unfolding revelation of redemption, um, almost as if we're in a helicopter rather than walking on the ground. Um, inevitably, we'll have to leave out a lot of detail. But we're just trying to see the root. We're just trying to see the general scheme and structure of how God revealed the plan of redemption in an unfolding and progressive way through the Bible. Um, so the book of Exodus, I suppose, is in, um, we could say it's in two parts, each part having two sections. The first part is, um, is all about deliverance. It's all about salvation. First of all, perhaps chapters 1 to 7 you could say, is the, is, is the salvation and deliverance of Moses himself. Just like the Lord Jesus, Satan was out to kill him as a baby, to snuff him out. Um, but he was like the Lord Jesus, he survived through a miracle, a miracle of, of, of God's intervention. Um, so there's the deliverance of Moses, uh, and then there's the deliverance of the people, the deliverance of Israel, um, which we will study in some detail in one of the evenings. So that's probably the first section. That probably takes you up to something like chapter 19. And then the second, uh, the second part also having two sections is is really you could you could say temple building or tabernacle building to be more precise um, there's the preparation first of all of, of the people um, 
and we know that the real the real temple, the real tabernacle, is the actual people of God, not the not the building, not the church building. So the people are prepared through the, the giving of the law and the the prophetic ministry of Moses as he as he as he prepares this people for God under God's hand and and then that moves on then to the building or the uh, of the tabernacle where God literally comes to to dwell with the people in the holy of holies in the temple in in the tabernacle which later became the temple and that's a kind of structure or pattern that we see really right through the bible isn't it um just an example david uh king david his his role was deliverance he was he fought the battles didn't he um he he was the great deliverer uh, but his son solomon he was all about temple building um really that's a pattern right through the Bible. God, God, first of all, delivers us. He delivers us as Christians. Um, he saves us. But why does he save us? He saves us to dwell with us, to indwell us. Um, and that's really the pattern right through the Bible. As I say, you could say, well, the Gospels. Um, the Gospels are like the first part of Exodus. It's, a, it's the deliverance, it's salvation, it's the Lord Jesus Christ achieving salvation and then from Acts to Revelation is temple building. It's the people of God being prepared like Moses prepared his people with the word of God and for the purpose of us being temples of the Holy Spirit that the, the Lord by the Holy Spirit indwells us and that's the purpose of salvation um, so that's just a rough scheme of, of exercise obviously you could, that's a very, very high level but I guess the first thing I want to do I'm just going to make some general points tonight and, and there are some things I'm still trying to work through to be honest in I want to be sure about before I'm preaching on them. So I haven't got all this sorted in my mind yet, but there's some things that I'm happy to... Just one or two observations tonight, and then I hopefully I'll be prepared next time. But first of all, I guess the, th the thing that we would say is, in Exodus, for the first time, we're introduced to this remarkable figure of Moses, the great lawgiver, and redeemer of Israel. And Exodus gives us his biography, um, which I'll just very quickly summarise, which is that he was born to Jewish parents when they were slaves in Egypt. Um, he was educated in the court of that, of that mighty empire, Egypt. And he was an heir um, of Egypt's wealth and prestige and pleasures. Yet, at the age of 40, he turned his back on all that, all that wealth and prestige. Uh, and he turned his back on that to identify himself with his own 
race which was being oppressed. It was under the jackboot, really, of, of Egypt. He had to flee the country and live outside Egypt for 40 years. That's a long, that's a long uh, Bible study course, isn't it? To be a preacher, for 40 years. And until God called him to return and lead his people out. And he stood before Pharaoh and in the name of God he demanded that Pharaoh let the people go. And God did mighty miracles to deliver his people. And then Moses led the Israelites in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 years to the edge of the promised land. And in a nutshell, Moses' biography. And there's many things that we could say and should say really about Moses and his character and so on. But what we're going to be doing in this study is dwelling on his significance in terms of this plan and unfolding scheme of redemption. What, uh, asking the question, what does God add or reveal through Moses or through Exodus, which is significantly new, uh, or at least makes things significantly clearer than they have been up till now? Uh, in scripture and there's a lot to say here in the book of Exodus about that um, just first of all that just, to, just to reflect on the vital importance of Moses the vital importance of Moses in scripture first of all he was instrumental in bringing about um, the land promise in the Abrahamic covenant, God had promised um, Abraham that, that he would be, through his seed, would be given a, a land. He would be made into a nation. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the Abrahamic covenant promises, promises as we uh, studied, were spiritual, and that talks about that in Romans, but some of them were, you know, physical, actual and that was one there was going to be a real land given um, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God uh, Genesis twelve two. God had said to Abraham and I will make of thee a great nation do you remember we, we looked at that passage where God said to Abraham, walk up and down the land. It was a great long walk and he, it was almost like a, a surveyor sketching out the, the measurements. And God said, every bit, every inch of this is going to be your inheritance, your, your people's land. And through Moses, Israel was greatly helped to become a coherent nation through the, the organisation that he provided. And he also led them to the borders of the promised land. And for Israel to stand any chance of being the kind of nation that God had planned, it was vital that she learned to be different from the nations. And, and Moses was so important in this. There had to be a distinction between the religion of Israel and the paganism all around her. And, uh, well, th- 
through Moses and the conflict with Pharaoh and through all those um, hard lessons Israel learnt through the wilderness journey um, and the giving of the law well Moses was instrumental in, in training Israel to be a holy nation we know that it didn't wholly work but that wasn't Moses' fault secondly the, the second point really in terms of the centrality of, of Moses and, and the importance of Moses um, is that he stands in scripture as the great type of Christ in the Old Testament now there are many characters in the Old Testament that are types of Christ but I would argue that Moses is top of the list of all the men or women of God who are typical of Christ in scripture Moses occupies the dominant place and, in, in, and I'll be going through quite a few of the parallels not so much tonight but in these, in these coming evenings he occupies a unique position and he's given an authority which lasts not only in his lifetime, not only in his age, but an authority which lasts well beyond him. For example, the subsequent prophets of Israel, um, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all these guys, all the, what we call the minor prophets, I don't know why we call them the minor prophets, nothing minor about them at all, but if you read the prophetic writings, there's these constant references to the Exodus and to the leadership of Moses. And often it's in terms of the work of God for his people that will take place in the latter days, by which they meant the New Testament, the latter days being from when Christ arrived, or Christ became incarnate to the second coming. And that prophetic um, view of the end times was often couched in terms of the exodus and the work that Moses did. Just one example, Micah 7.15. Here talking about the end times from their perspective. Um, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt... Will I show unto him marvellous things? You see, the marvellous things, these new things that are coming, are couched in terms uh, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt. That was the template, the model. Um, and in fact, the prophets themselves, they, they, Moses was really like a kind of template or mould from which all the prophets were made. Um, they, all, they, all, they all saw him as, as, the, as the preeminent prophet. In, in fact, it, well it says in Exodus 34 verse 10 for example, and there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And that's a big claim. When you think of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these amazing prophets, 
There arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses. Not one of them matched Moses. He was the he was unique in that sense. Whom the Lord knew face to face. That was the difference. There was some well, I'm going to talk about this in a second. There was something different about this face to face, this directness that this di- the directness of the relationship Moses had with God. And, and, and such is the, is the authority and the significance of Moses that you even see him almost you almost see him in glory because in the book of Revelation, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is, is the Lord Jesus, but they're singing the song of Moses as well. I mean, that's some, that's some impact, isn't it? You know, so what I'm trying to say is Moses is, is hugely significant, both in time and it seems even in eternity. According to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, Moses was set over all of God's house, it says. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. So like Joseph was set over the house of Potiphar and the house of Pharaoh, God set Moses over all of his house which is a bigger house than a prison or even a country or an empire. Uh, All of his house, God set Moses and he was a faithful steward like Joseph was. Um, A servant Moses is faithful in all mine house. And because of his importance and prominence, from the perspective of, of, of our subject of this series, progressive revelation of redemption, Moses is hugely important in terms of typology of Christ and of redemption. It's hard to exaggerate how what the, the, the typological value of Moses to Scripture. In many ways, the people of God in the Old Covenant... Now remember when I say Old Covenant, I don't mean Old Testament. Old Covenant begins in Exodus. Exodus to Malachi is really the Old Covenant. Genesis had other covenants, which we've studied. In many ways, the people of God in the Old Covenant, they looked to Moses as we look to Christ. Now, at first sound, that sounds an exaggeration. But if we really read the scripture carefully, we see that the people of God had a connection to to Moses analogous or similar to the one that we have to Christ. The people put their trust in him. In Exodus 14 verse 31 it says, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians... And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Or there's Exodus 19 verse 9. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. You see, the the people were expected by God to have a relationship with Moses in terms of faith and trust. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians, which is quite a remarkable verse, a few verses here. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 3, and this is not said of any other prophet in the Old Testament, nothing like it, nothing like this is said of any other character in the Old Testament. Just hear, hear these words. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? In other words, just as in baptism, an intimate relationship is signified between the believer and Christ based on the saving work of Christ, in a, in a similar way, although not an identical way, the mighty acts of redemption wrought through Moses pledged Israel to have faith in him. He was seen as the redeemer by the people of God in the Old Covenant. Um, and nearly all the language that we have in the New Testament to explain redemption comes from the time of Moses. All that, all the thought and the, the language is mosaic. His redeeming work was symbolic, but it was not just symbolic. It was the actual redemption of an actual people. He was the mediator of a covenant. He was the redeemer of a people. It was a first level salvation, and by which I mean there is a, it speaks of a greater salvation, which of course Moses could never have achieved. But it was a real salvation. It was a real deliverance of a real people from a real bondage, from a real enemy, into a real freedom and to a real liberty. And so in that first level sense, he was the redeemer of the old covenant. His life was full of redeeming acts and his words gave actual revelation from God. And his ministry was marked by miracles which can only really be paralleled by the Lord Jesus Christ himself he was full of miracles obviously God's doing it through him but he was a man marked with miracle working and yet for all of that having said all of that Moses was not the Messiah He was not the promised seed of the woman. Now, he would have been a good candidate, you would have thought. But the author of the Hebrews in the New Testament contrasts Moses and Christ. It says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, 
who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honour than the house. So Moses was faithful. God appointed him over all of his house. And it was a glorious covenant. And Moses was, well, let's just say, he was central and, and, and highly important. And yet Jesus is worthy of greater honour, says the writer to the Hebrews, because not only was he over his house, he actually, he actually built the house. He, house really, I think, meaning all the plan of salvation, all, all, all the, the church, the, the plan before the foundation of the world, the, everything relating to the work of God. The Lord Jesus Christ built that. Um, and therefore, he is more glorious than Moses. Mo- the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one, not Moses. But Moses stands perhaps uniquely, well not uniquely, but supremely, in typical relation to Christ. Um, so when we think of that, um, my mind t- turns to John Calvin's um, summary of the work of Christ, of the offices of Christ as prophet, priest and king. That's how he, de- he, he, he described the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as prophet, priest and king. And... When we think of Moses, he so clearly is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of those offices. Um, In terms of of the Lord Jesus being a prophet, scripture tells us specifically that Messiah will be like unto Moses. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, and this is a a specific prophecy that came true, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. That's Moses speaking. A prophet will be raised up from the midst of thee, so from Israel, of thy brethren, yeah, of, 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 of Israel, like unto me, like unto me, Moses, unto him shall ye hearken. So there, Moses is saying, one day, God will raise up a prophet like me. And who was that? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Um, the prophet calling the people back to God what did the Lord Jesus do repent and believe the kingdom of God is here the kingdom of God is near preached in the villages he was the prophet um, connecting the people back to God speaking the words of God often to a rebellious people 
Uh, and then, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was a priest. And Moses was a priest. We, we, we sometimes miss this out when we think of Moses because, obviously, he appointed the, uh, the, the, the priesthood, the Aaronic or Aaron's line was appointed for the priesthood. But there was the, the, the priesthood took time to set up. The old covenant uh, didn't begin with the priesthood in place. Moses was the priest to begin with. Uh, he was the priest of Israel when the old covenant was initiated, before the priesthood was appointed. And we, we, we can read of him doing this in Exodus chapter 24. Verses 4 to 8. And this is Moses acting as the priest. It says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings. Of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning these words. He was the priest. But he was making, he was initiating and making a blood covenant, wasn't he? He was sprinkling blood on the people, on the altar. He was establishing a covenant in blood. As the priest and of course our, our saviour, what did he do? He said, this is the blood, this is my blood. Moses says, this is the blood. The Lord Jesus said, this is my blood, the covenant. You see, that's the great difference. The Lord Jesus, the, the Redeemer, uh, which Moses is the type of, establishes the new covenant in not just blood, not just the blood, his blood. Moses didn't do that. That was the difference. But Moses here is foreshadowing this great new covenant maker who will establish and make the new covenant with his people. Moses acts as a priest when he intercedes for Israel. It's another great function of the priest is to intercede on behalf of the people. And we know that scripture tells us that our Lord Jesus is our great intercessor. He intercedes for his people. Um, well, Moses acts in this way, doesn't he? When he intercedes for Israel after the sin of the golden calf. And like our Lord Jesus Christ, he offers himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. He offers himself as a substitute. He offers to bear the guilt and the punishment of the sins of his people. 
He says in chapter 32, verse 32, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Apostle Paul said something similar, didn't he? Do you know, Moses was prepared to have his name erased from the Lamb's book of life in order for this sin that his people had committed to be forgiven. And of course we know the Lord Jesus Christ, well he gave, he became as priest, the high priest, he didn't just offer a sacrifice for sins, he, he was the sacrifice for sin, the final and full sacrifice. He offered himself to God as the sacrifice for sins once for all, the end of the ages. He is the supreme high priest that Moses symbolized and foreshadowed. of course we think of our Lord Jesus Christ as the king, don't we as well? And Moses typifies royal authority really because he's the lawgiver, only the king. I mean, they didn't have conservatives and labor and liberal democrats in those days. It, nearly everywhere was a, was a monarchy and what the king said went. The king was the lawgiver. And Moses was the lawgiver. He acted in that kingly way. He gave the law on behalf of God. And um, he handed it down to the people. Of course, we, we see our Lord Jesus Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> at the Mount, giving his royal charter, how a Christian should live, what a Christian is. Taking keeping much of the law of Moses but doing something much more than the law of Moses he, this is saying this is my kingdom these are my kingdom ethics these are my, this is how you live in my kingdom um, he was the king so in a, a great sense God reveals much more to us about the Messiah than we've had up till now through the life of Moses and of course we look back now and we worship our Lord Jesus in his great three offices of prophet, priest and king so that was really just to to emphasise the importance and the preeminence of Moses particularly I emphasise how the people saw him how they connected to him Another thing I just want to say, and it really struck me as I read Exodus, is the advancement and progression in the way God now communicates with his people. We see this in the way he communicates with Moses and in the way he communicates with his people generally. There is a shift, I think. There's a difference now in the way that God relates and communicates to his people. I'll explain. Well, first of all, we'll think of it in terms of Moses as an individual. 
Just think for a second of the sheer intimacy and directness in the way that God speaks to Moses. This is something which is a shift in gear, I think. We see it, of course, with Abraham. I'm not saying this is completely unique. And we see it with others. But is there anyone in the Old Testament who knew such a direct and continuous access to God as Moses? Thinking again of Numbers 12. Do you remember Numbers 12 where basically God is defending Moses? Um, He's defending the authority of Moses against Miriam and Aaron. And he says this. He says, if there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. So God's saying, my normal way of doing things, if if I have a prophet, the way I speak to him or her, um, is through a vision or a dream and then he goes on to say this is the Lord speaking my servant Moses is not so who is faithful in all mine house with him will I speak mouth to mouth even apparently and not in dark speeches and the similitude And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Did you get that? God is saying, I'm, I'm going to speak to you, Moses, and you need to listen to this, Miriam and Aaron, who are trying to undermine the leadership of Moses. I don't speak to Moses in the way that I speak to you or to any other prophet. I speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face. So this directness of communication is a remarkable thing here with Moses. His intimacy with God is symbolised by the shining skin on his face. Um, The reflection of God's glory in his own skin after 40 days and 40 nights spent with God. Now, what I'm arguing is that there's something, that there's a, there's a dialing up of the directness of the communication God is now having. At this point here we're talking with Moses. Now we mustn't, we mustn't over-egg this point because as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 earlier, Paul considered the glory of the new covenant to be more glorious than the old covenant. In verse 18 of that chapter it says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And even Moses, even even allowing for this point I'm making, in Exodus 33 Verse 17 to 23, even Moses was not permitted to see the face of God, but only his back. 
And of course, God doesn't have a face, he doesn't have a back. These are anthropomorphic terms to help us. God's trying to condescend to our puny minds. But even Moses, allowing for a unique directness of relationship with God, even he wasn't allowed to see every, everything about God. But we, we in the New Testament, what does it say? With open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'll come back to that later. So what is the change then? What is the development from the patriarchal period that we've just been studying the last few weeks? What is the development in terms of the way God communicates with his people? Well, I think what struck me as I read Exodus again is there seems to be a more permanent divine presence with God's people. In the, during the patriarchal period, there were occasional, but they were very time-limited manifestations of God. And we studied some of those, these theophanies, in the, these, this post-flood patriarchal period. There were these appearances of God, often accompanied by an extraordinary visual display, and sometimes in human form. But they were given to a few select people and they were often fleeting and very time-limited theophanic manifestations of God's glory. But now, under the, in the period of Moses, the theophanies seem to me to be different. And there are two vital forms of theophany that we read of in Exodus which I think emphasises which emphasise this change by which it's more direct and it's more continuous the first theophany is the pillar of cloud and fire the pillar of cloud and fire turn to Exodus 13 and 21 and 22 and try and try to see the difference try and see the continuity of presence here in these verses it says and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night notice the permanence he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people you see he took it he didn't take it away it stayed this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire did not move from before the people notice it says the Lord is in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire it wasn't just a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud the Lord was in it 
It was a theophany. And this pillar does not depart from before the people. And we read in Exodus 14 verses 19 and 20 how it moves to a position behind the people of God to form a barrier between them and the Egyptians before the journey through the Red Sea. And it's through the pillar um, that the Lord looked onto the host of, of, of the Egyptians and troubled, it says he troubled the Egyptians. But the Lord's looking at the enemy, as it were, through this pillar. The Lord's in it. This is something I think we don't see. We haven't seen this up till now. This is new. This continuous presence of God visibly with the people of God, not moving. Another example, when the people started to doubt God and complained in Exodus 16, they were, they were quite good at complaining, as you'll notice. Um, it says, It came to pass, as Aaron spoke unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And we see this cloud revealed, revealing the Lord on Mount Sinai as well, at the giving of the law. I don't, I'm not sure if it's the same cloud or, or a different cloud. I think probably different because the word pillar is not mentioned. It says in chapter 19, verse 9, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud. And we read of fire again in, in verse 18 of chapter 19. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly and then in chapter 33 verse 9 the cloudy pillar descends upon the tabernacle and stood at the door of the tabernacle and it says the Lord talked with Moses it's almost a throwaway remark we shouldn't say that about scripture, but the Lord talked with Moses. When the tablets of law were renewed in Exodus 34, we read in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then of course we read of the Shekinah glory, don't we, in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. So, this theophany of the cloud and the fire, both in terms of a pillar and I think probably different form on the mountain and in the tabernacle, I'm not sure about that. But this continuous direct presence of God is a difference. And then the second theophany that we have in this period is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord first appears to Moses in chapter 3 in verse 2. In a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now it's obvious that this angel is not an ordinary angel. I'm not sure if you're supposed to call angels ordinary. Probably not. But um, he certainly is not just an angel. This is clear from verse 4 of chapter 3 where we're told... 
that when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see God, to see, sorry, Moses turned aside, aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, God was in the fire. God was in the bush. In Exodus 14, 19, the angel of the Lord goes before the camp of Israel and with the pillar moves from before to behind. And then in Exodus 23, verse 20 and 21, there's an amazing promise. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. And the following verse makes it obvious that this this is God himself. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Only Only God can forgive sins. And then verse 22 of Exodus 23. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. Verse 23. For mine angel shall go before thee. Well, what's the importance of of all of that? Why emphasize these two theophanies? in terms of this progression in the way that God relates to his people. Well, I've said it already, the first point. These forms of revelation, the pillar of cloud and fire and the angel of the Lord, the directness and the consistency of this direct divine revelation to Moses and the people are significant advancements in terms of how God communicates with his people. Um, To be precise, it's an advancement since the flood, because, of course, we we have to remember that before the flood, there was very direct communication, particularly in the Garden of Eden. But after the flood, we get these occasional manifestations of God with a very limited number of people. Um... There used to be, of course, this abiding presence of God with man in paradise. And some of that communication was retained, even though it was a broken relationship. The cherubims and the flaming sword, they still, they still turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. God still walked with Enoch. Um, but things changed after the flood. In the patriarchal period. Direct communication was occasional and fleeting. But that was never God's plan. It's not God's plan for us. That was not God's normal way. God's plan was always to abide with his people. And for there to be real communion and fellowship. And with the time of Moses. There comes a step forward in the achievement of that goal. For this intimacy and directness of communication. This is advanced in Exodus. This is, at least this is what I'm arguing. And it's uh, clearly seen in the wilderness journeys of Israel. And at Sinai 
where the Lord is Israel's constant companion, guide, protector and provider. And in the tabernacle where he literally becomes the indweller of his people. These theophanies in closing, these forms of revelation anticipate the fact that one day God would speak to us by his son. And how clearly now God communicates with us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, if he had known me, you should have known, the, my, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? The Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have something better than, than a pillar of fire and cloud. We have something better than the angel of the Lord even. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's spoken to us. If we want to know what God is like, the only way to know is to ask, what is Jesus like? He has revealed to us, God has revealed to us the Father. There was glory and there was light of revelation in Moses, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3. But now for us as Christians, in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace, what is, what is the situation for us? Well, it's summed up in 2 Corinthians 4.6. This is our relationship with God now. If we're, if we're the Lord's, if we've been born again, this is, this, is the, the, this is the type of relationship and communication we have with God. Just listen, listen to these words in closing. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that made Moses' face shine is shining in our hearts. Not as we gaze on Moses, but as we gaze at the, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse speaks of, a, of an act of divine creation, similar to the creation of physical light at the beginning of time. The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has commanded that light will shine in your dark heart. And he's created light. He's, he's spoken light into your life and dispelled the darkness, just as he did at the beginning of time, if you're a Christian. The new birth is an act of divine creation. That's why we're called new creatures. Um, we are born again and we have an intimacy and a depth and consistency of knowledge and fellowship with God through Christ, by the Spirit and through his word, which is, which is prefigured and which is typified by Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus. And then 
So I did say that was my last point, but just in literally five seconds, I think we have here also, I want to say it in case I forget to say this, in terms of the, this angel of the Lord as being one of the ways God communicated during this Mosaic period, don't we here have the beginnings or, or an advancement, we should say, about the doctrine of the Trinity, which we have fully a fuller teaching on in the New Testament. If we say that the angel of the Lord was, is God and was sent by God, then we're well on the way, aren't we, to the doctrine of the Trinity. The true God of Israel is God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like the angel of the Lord, the Son is sent by the Father into the world to be the saviour of the world. The Holy Spirit, like the angel of the Lord, is sent down from heaven by the Son on, the, on his Pentecostal church. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. And we see this truth in an embryonic way forming here, even in the teaching about the angel of the Lord. My name is in him, God says. He will forgive sins. Well, only God, only the Lord Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. So dear friends, that's just a taster really of some of the truth that we'll be trying to mine in this book of Exodus over these next two or three studies. Amen. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.